0: Baseball was my favorite sport when I was growing up. My dad loved baseball, and uh, every little boy loves his dad, so I'm like, I love baseball. And I remember when I was eight years old, I I finally was old enough to join Little League. And I joined Little League, and I was drafted by the Reds. I got drafted at eight years old. That's because every kid gets drafted. But I I was playing for the Reds, and Coach Mike was my coach. Coach Mike was cool. He was a construction worker. And uh, we just, we all uh, looked up to this guy. And I remember one of the things about Coach Mike is he gave all the kids a nickname kind of based on their personality and, and who they were. So for example, uh, Chris was our first baseman, and he was kind of a, uh, a, a bigger guy. He was a little bigger, you know. He, he wasn't the guy that was going to run fast. He was the guy that was going to hit dingers. And uh, so Coach Mike, the nickname he gave him was Cheeseburger. And we're like, all right, that's cool. Uh, Then there was Lance. Lance was our catcher, and Lance came from a wealthy family, so he always had, like, all the bling. He always was decked out, and he had this bleach blonde hair, like, just blonde as all get out, and so uh, Coach Mike uh, called him Ken doll, you know, from, like, Barbie and Ken. He looked like a Ken doll, you know, with all this stuff. Uh, Then there was a a right fielder, and I don't remember the right fielder's name, uh, but but Coach Mike called him Buzz uh, because he always seemed like he was lost in space. And uh, we're like, I'm not sure how that works out. then it came to me, and I was was a pretty good little player. Uh, I was fast. And I learned if I could get on base, I could typically steal a couple bases and and score a run. And so, you know, I was up there playing, and I was like, man, how do I get on base more? And so what I did is, is, you know, here's home plate. I would crowd the plate and see how close I could get to it. Man, and I I got hit like 16 times that season. Like, they just hit me with the ball, and I had to get on base, and it was great. And then I was like, well, if they're not going to hit me with the ball, you know, like baseball is about strike zone. So I just got up there and I squatted down real low, you know, so I had no strike zone. And so I would either get hit or, or walked. And I remember Coach, Coach Mike was like, Kevin, you've been on base more than anybody else simply because you keep getting hit and you walk. And uh, so I was like, you know, I'm ready for my, my, my nickname, right? I was expecting something great. I was expecting, you know, I was fast. I was like, call me Flash, you know? Call me Speed Racer. Call me Dynamite. Coach Mike said, Kevin, you're fast and you're scrappy and you're surprising. So my nickname was Termite. <laughs> Who wants a nickname of Termite? Praise God that I only played for the Reds for three years, and that nickname did not continue for the rest of my life. But let me ask you this. How many of you have that nickname related to your personality? You know, like you you, you just have something about you, and people are like, I'm going to call you this because you remind me of this, whatever it happens to be. Maybe, maybe for you, maybe you don't have that nickname. But how many of you have like something that happened in your past that, that nobody forgets. You will always be known for that one thing that happened in your—anybody have one of those stories? Uh, there's a guy by the name of Rick Regal who was a college football player for, for Cal Berkeley in the 1920s, and he was a good football player, and in 1929, he led uh, Cal Berkeley into the Rose Bowl to uh, figure out who's going to be the best college football team in the nation, and uh, they get to this, this this Rose Bowl football game, and it's it's one of those tight games, you know, like it's just tight, back and forth, uh, just just a, a knockdown game, and the score is tied, and at a crucial point of the game, uh, Roy Regal is, is on defense, and a crucial point, the other team fumbles the ball, and Riggle's like, this is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change this game. He, he scoops up that football and he starts running as fast as he can. And he's, he's showing his athleticism. He's dodging around players, he's breaking tackles. He runs that ball all the way down and finally gets tackled at the one yard line, three feet short of a touchdown. Now, what's surprising was he was actually tackled by one of his own teammates because in his excitement of scooping up that football and trying to win the game, he lost track of which end zone was his, and he was running towards the wrong end zone. He was going to score for the other team. And what's awesome is for the rest of his life, he wasn't known for anything else. He wasn't known for his remarkable athletic ability. He wasn't known for any other accomplishments. He was known forever as Roy Wrongway Regal's. Anyone ever been in that situation where you're like, you know what? I had that one thing that happened all those years ago, and I am defined by that. Maybe, maybe it's like regals. Maybe it was something bad, and you're like, man, I wish, I wish people would forget it. Or maybe it's something good. Maybe you did something really good in your life, and, and that's all people remember you for is that one thing. I'm the guy that did this. I'm the guy that did that. We're studying the book of Acts for the majority of this year. And uh, looking at how, uh, in the book of Acts, the early church, it wasn't just uh, an institution. It wasn't a place that you come and you hear a pastor preach and give some good jokes, and and you have these religious services, and then you go home and you feel good. No, the early church was a movement that impacted and shaped everything around it. And our desire here at Restoration Church is, how do we, God, how do we not become an institution? How do we become a movement that really impacts Yakima and the Northwest, in our country, and the world? How do we become that kind of movement? This morning, uh, Pastor Jake read for us out of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 is really a continuation of what happened in Acts chapter 8. And if you remember the story in Acts, uh, previous in Acts, you had Stephen, who was uh, a disciple of Christ. He was a, a follower of Jesus, and he um, rubbed the religious leaders wrong. And so the religious leaders murdered him, uh, and he was a first Christian martyr. And as a response of his murder, in Acts chapter one, in Acts chapter eight, it says that the disciples were dispersed from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria through the region. And some of those disciples that were dispersed there are found themselves in Antioch. And Acts chapter eleven is talking, continuing those stories of those Christians that had dispersed to Antioch. Now, a little bit about Antioch. Uh, Antioch was about 300 miles north of, of Jerusalem. It was a magnificent city. It is said that in Antioch, they had this main road that was paved in marble. Like, can you imagine the city of Yakima? We would throw a hissy fit over the waste of money. But this city had this four-mile road that was paved in marble. In fact, Antioch was the, first, uh, the only uh, city in the world at that time that had streetlights that came on. At night. Like this was a, a marvelous, magnificent city. In addition to that, this was also a city that literally worshiped sex. Outside of the city, there was a, a, a throne of Daphne where sex was literally enthroned and worshiped through a priestess that was really uh, a religious prostitute. And so, Acts chapter 11 is telling about the disciples that dispersed to this region, and after 10 years, the people in this region in Antioch, they give these, the, the, these group of Christians, these disciples, a nickname. It says in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, what I think is interesting is, is again, when we understand a little bit about Antioch, you've got a, a city that is full of itself. It is full of itself, they've got uh, a culture full of wealth that worships sex. And this city, this worldly city, they look at this group of disciples and they're like, huh, what should we call them? Should we call them religious freaks? Should we call them self-righteous people? Should we call them hypocrites or judgmental jerks? No, the city of Antioch looks at these disciples and said, we're going to call them Christians. Now, that word Christian has become diluted in our day and age because we have this idea that, you know, we have cultural Christians. Well, you know, my, my family, you know, they're Christian, so I'm, my parents are Christian, so I'm, I'm Christian too. Well, you know, I was, I was born in church. I was born under this pew right here, so of course I've been in church all my whole life. That makes me a Christian. Well, I voted for this person, so I'm a Christian. I'm, a, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Muslim, I, I gotta be Christian, right? The word Christian has become diluted in our day and age. There's a lot of people that would say, well, I'm a Christian, but those people would have a hard time saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a believer. They simply say, well, yeah, if I'm choosing between Jesus and Satan, I'm, of course I'm choosing Jesus, so yeah, I'm one of them. But this word Christian is so much bigger than that. This word Christian is really a combination of two words. Christ, pointing to Christ. And I-A-N, Ian, Ian. I don't don't know how to say that. I asked Jake how to say it this week. And he's like, I don't know how you'd say it. So I-A-N is really a Latin suffix that means to belong to. So literally, to be a Christian meant that you belonged to Christ. You belonged to Jesus. And what's remarkable is this isn't the disciples telling Antioch, hey, we're Christian. No, this is the people of Antioch who are secular, who have no interest in God, who are living their own life. They're looking at these disciples, and they're saying, these people belong to Jesus. They belong to him. Now, the question is, how could they know that? What was it about these disciples that would identify them as being people that belong to Jesus? Well, we've talked about this for a little bit. We've talked about how a Christian uh, simply means this. What Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter, uh, uh, chapter 22, he said to be a Christian is to love God and love people. I mean, that's what, Place your faith in him and to love God and love people. That's what it looks like. But those are general statements. In our text today, we're gonna see what are some characteristics? Like if we're if we're really if we really belong to Jesus, what are some characteristics that help us define what it looks like to actually love God and love people? That's our message. Four characteristics of what it looks like to be a Christian. Number one, Jesus will be the foundation of your life. Jesus will be the answer to all the problems in your life. It says in, in verse 19, it starts out and it says, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen, they traveled to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they're speaking the word of God to no one except for Jews. Now, this is one of the things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, about how there was some animosity and how uh, people thought, man, the message of God belongs to the Jewish people, because we're God's chosen people. And God's been doing a lot of work to say, you guys are wrong. The gospel is for everybody. I came to die for the whole world so everybody could know and have salvation. Verse 20, it says, But some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. These people are like, we're not just going to preach to the Jews, we're going to preach to all these other different types of people in this city. Now again, you've got these disciples that are scattered into Antioch, which is a proud city. And what are the disciples saying the people need? They come in Antioch and they're like, man, Antioch is such a messed up city. Man, it's so wrong. It's it's cultural. They worship sex. What is the solution that the disciples have for the city? Is it a political revolution? We need new politicians. Is it education reform? Oh, we need a better education system. The education system is failing. That's the solution to our problems. What is it that they're saying is a problem? Is a solution? We need We need need a financial overhaul. We need more money. We need to raise taxes so we have more money. Or we need to cut spending. Oh, no, of course, they are going to say, well, we need to be tolerant of all people. If we're tolerant, then this city will really be something. No, these disciples come into Antioch. They come in, and what is their message? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It is Jesus again and again and again. They're saying, hey, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, it so transformed these disciples that they could not help but share about Jesus again and again and again and again. This is what happens when when the hand of God is present in your life. You can't help but have the word of God just naturally flow out of your mouth. These disciples, they can't help but talk about Jesus, can't help but point to Jesus, can't help to say, listen, Jesus is the Answer. Makes me think, huh, what are the primary things that come out of our mouths? What do we talk the most about? When we're looking at the problems in our city, in our country, all around us, what is really the answer to the problems? What is the foundation for our life? What is the source of what makes life good? What is the answer to the problems? See, I was challenged recently where a friend of mine said, hey, can we get to, can we get, to get together? I'd like to be able to talk through a couple things and get some input. And so we, we're getting coffee, and he's, he's talking about the problems he's facing, and I'm like, oh, man, I totally know what to do for you. Like, you need to try this, and then you need to read this book, and then you need to say this, and there's the things you need to do, and that'll fix your problem. And I walked away, and I was kind of like, Really? Is that what Christianity is? Is Christianity just good advice? I mean, yes, we need wisdom. Yes, we need to say, here's some practical things for us to do. But ultimately, do we believe that Jesus is the answer for our problems? Do we believe that Jesus has the answer? Because I got so convicted. Because here I am telling this guy, here's all the things you need to do. And there are practical things, but not once did I say, hey, where's your faith at? Where's your relationship with Jesus? Are you pursuing him? Are you allowing him to change you? Are you living for him? These disciples, they knew that Jesus was a foundation for their life. They knew that Jesus was the one that people needed to hear about. And they can't help but tell other people about Jesus because the hand of God is on their life and the word of God is on their lips. And as a result, Verse 21, it says that people were turning to the Lord. Again, in Antioch, what you kind of have is you have this church plant, right? And these disciples, they're, they're constantly talking about Jesus, and people are, the, church, the church plant is growing. People are coming. This is exciting. And word gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, this church in Antioch, they're just growing, and by leaps and bounds, people are getting saved. And the church in Jerusalem was like, what is going on? They're like, here's our solution. We're going to send Barnabas to go and check it out. To send Barnabas to, to Antioch. And here's what he finds, verse 23. It says, when Barnabas arrived, he saw the grace of God and was glad. In fact, that's our second character, characteristic of what it looks like to be a Christian, is that the grace of God is evident in our lives. Now, I would say this. the Grace, grace is kind of an invisible quality, right? I mean, you can't necessarily see grace. It's not like a shirt you put on and say, look, I've got grace on. That's not quite how it works. So how do you see the grace of God in a person's life? Is it because they go to church? Is it because they look a certain way? Or how do you see the grace of God in a person's life? I'm glad you asked that question because I do have an answer. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians that if someone is walking with God, There's these things called the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. The apostle Paul would say, this is what it looks like to see the grace of God in your life. It's the fruit of the spirit are becoming increasingly present in your life. And Barnabas shows up and he's like, man, I see the way these people interact with one another. I see, I see how they react when they're angry and annoyed. I see how they react in conflict. I see how they deal with problems. I see how they talk about one another. He says, man, I see that through the Spirit. I see the grace of God present in their lives. See, the grace of God is more about character rather than external actions. So what, is, what does it look like to have the grace of God in your life? I've got... Two examples to share. I've got a couple of friends, and both of these examples are related to traveling in an airport. A number of years ago, I was, uh, uh, was going to go on a mission trip with, um, with the church, and they asked me and another guy, Hey, would you go scout out the mission trip? We want you, we'll send you in advance and kind of check it out. So we're, we're checking it out, and we're coming back, we're flying back to, to Seattle, and we had a layover in Salt Lake City. All right, so we're going to land in Salt Lake City, and we had like a half hour block to get to our airplane to catch the pl- flight to Seattle, right? The problem was our flight was coming in about 10 minutes late, which we're we're like, we're fine. We still have time to go catch our plane. Well, it just so happened that that weekend was also one of the weekends that one of the other major airlines, their computer system went down, and they had to cancel all of their flights. So they had thousands of people who were all desperately trying to find flights to get to wherever they needed to go. And so our airline, they were genius. They thought, well, Kevin and this guy, they're going to be like 10 minutes late. So they sold our seats. Literally, they sold our seats to these other people that were waiting. Oh, I hope they made a killing on it. I don't know what they did. And so we get to the, we, we land in the airport. We run through the airport. We get there with like 10 minutes left and the airplane's pulling out. It left early on us. My friend, man, he went unglued. Just, what, what do you mean? What, that, what about my rights? You can't do that. And he's, do you know who I am? I've got all these things. And he's just, Man, he was, he was pretty hot. Like, like that's, you know, and, and he, oh man, it, I'm not even going to say those words because uh, I've got some of our elders here and I want to have a job tomorrow. And I, it was just like, whoa, this is a guy I respect. He loves the Lord, but this comes out of him. Well, then I've got contrast. I've got one of my pastor friends and we, we meet twice a year to do uh, some training together. And uh, we were going to meet in Nevada uh, one time. And one of my pastor friends, he was going to stay for a few extra days and, and excite see and do some things. And so, uh, of course, he checked a bag. And so we all arrived at the airport kind of around the same time. And, and he's uh, at the carousel waiting. You guys been there? You're waiting. There's only so many times that carousel can go down. His bag was gone. And he's like, man, dude, my, my trip is just, I got nothing. Like, what am I supposed to do now? I remember it was so... Awesome, because he goes up to the counter, and he's just completely patient and calm and gracious to the attendant. I mean, yes, he does point out, hey, you guys lost my bag. But he spoke with care and grace, and it was remarkable. Now, I'll say both of those friends, both those men love Jesus. I admire both of those men. But one of them displayed the grace of God in their life, and the other one didn't. Let me ask you, when you're in that situation that things are getting tense, is the grace of God evident in your life? Are the fruit, of spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, are those characteristics that people see when things are getting rough and challenging? Love, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control, are those things evident? Third characteristic characteristic of what it looks like to be a Christian is that discipleship is happening in community. People are engaged in discipleship within community. Again, Barnabas is sent to this church. He sees the grace of God. And here's what it says next in verse 23. He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Now, again, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, wait a second. We just read that the grace of God was evident in their lives. That's awesome." And then right after that, the Apostle, or right after Barnabas is trying to encourage them to remain faithful, I'm like, why? Like Barnabas, those people, they're doing good. The grace of God is evident. Now you're encouraging them to remain faithful. Why is that? Well, can we just be honest And how easy it is for us to get distracted? As Christians, it is easy for us to be distracted and to take our eyes off the Lord. And when we're first become a Christian, like, man, everything's exciting, everything is awesome, but we have this sin nature that still resides somewhere deep within inside of us. And it is so easy for us to take our eyes off of God and put the focus on ourselves, put the focus on other things. In fact, isn't this what happened with the apostle Peter? Peter is on the boat and he sees Jesus walking on the water and he's like, whoa, can I do that? And Jesus is like, come on, come on out. And Peter literally steps out on the water and walks on the water. And what happens when he takes his eyes off Jesus? He starts sinking. Ah, oh, save me. Huh? Like how many of that, how many of us in the room, that's our story? Like when my eyes are on him and I'm focused, man, oh, life is good. But then I take my eyes off Jesus and I'm like, where are you? This is terrible, save me. Barnabas knows how easy it is for us to take our eyes off of God. So he is encouraging man, hey, stay faithful. Stay, keep your heart devoted to him. And see, what you have is you have Barnabas. As an older, mature Christian, he's described as a good man, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And here he is in Antioch, hanging out with these new Christians, encouraging them remain faithful, walking through life with them, saying, keep your eyes on Jesus, don't get distracted. This is discipleship. Discipleship, that's kind of a a Christian word. Simply, it means mentoring. It means living life with one another. It means encouraging one another and pointing each other back to where we need to be. That's what Barnabas is doing. He's going to assume this role of of pastor and, and live with these Christians and help them figure it out and keep their eyes on Jesus. And it's awesome because as a result of that, Again, we see again, people are added to the church. So many people that Barnabas is is like, I can't keep up with all the demands. So look what happens in verse 25. It says, Barnabas, he went off for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught the people. Again, this is discipleship. Barnabas had met Paul in Acts chapter 9. A couple weeks ago, we studied this passage. Remember the story where Saul had been a persecutor of Christians? He was a murderer of Christians. And then he gets saved and meets Jesus. He comes to Jerusalem and the apostles are like, dude, we can't, we don't want you around. You can't be one of us. You were a murderer. Like, like you can't, there's no way we're going to let you into the church. But Barnabas, here's that faith story. He sees the hand of God present in in Paul's life, in Saul's life. And so Barnabas speaks up and vouches for Saul. He says, guys, we need to love this guy. We need to bring him in. Ten years has happened since there. Barnabas is in Antioch and he's overwhelmed. I can't keep up with all that's happening, with all the stuff happening in the church. But he remembers the hand of God on Saul's life. He remembers that Saul was called by God to preach to the Gentiles. He remembers the potential that Saul had. So Barnabas says, hey, Saul, come with me. Come and follow me, and let's go do this pastor thing together. In fact, for the next couple of years, next couple of chapters, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're going to be kind of like a dynamic duo, like just partners in ministry it starts out just like this. It starts out where, where Barnabas is the leader and it's Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas is leading and Paul is just kind of following along and, and learning from, Bar- from, from Barnabas. But in not very long time, it switches where soon it becomes Paul as the leader and Barnabas as the assistant. This is discipleship. This is what it looks like. Sometimes we overcomplicate it in the church. Discipleship is simply reminding people of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for them. And then it's saying, let me show you how to do this. Let me show you how to live as a Christian. Let me show you how to do this pastor thing. Let me show you how to do this parent thing. Let me show you how to do this husband thing. That is what discipleship is. Sometimes we overcomplicate it. Simply inviting someone along with you. Watch how I do this. That's what's happening at Antioch. One more characteristic of a Christian, and that is they, are, uh, they have a generous and sacrificial love for others. Verse 28 is going to talk about a guy by the name of, of Agabus. And, uh, you know, the, what's funny is people have all these, like, Bible names. You know, I named my son Paul, and I made my son John. Nobody named their son Agabus. I've never seen that name ever. I don't know. You, you know, uh, people just don't care about that one. But uh, that wasn't in my notes, just so you know. That was off the cuff. So uh, verse 28 says, this man Agabus, he prophesies and warns that there's going to be a famine that's going to uh, come over the land over, during the reign of Claudius. Now, this is one of the things I love uh, about the Bible is uh, that story, that, that, that famine under Claudius is real. Like, like history tells you, there was a famine under the reign of Claudius and it caused all these problems. I love when you can see that the Bible lines up with history, right? These things go together. So there's this famine. In verse 29, it says, the disciples were determined, everyone according to their ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. Right, these, these disciples at Antioch, they'd never met the disciples in Jerusalem. They didn't know who those people were. They just knew, oh yeah, they're, they're disciples as well. They, they belong to Jesus. And so when you have a genuine faith in Jesus, it kind of hap- when you place your faith in Jesus, two things that God kind of does in you. Where, uh, number one, uh, no longer do you hold money as something to grasp onto. Right? Money isn't something that, that we grasp onto. No, we hold that with loose hands. And secondly, there's a genuine love for others. And you see that play out with this church at Antioch. They're like, hey, there's these disciples at Jerusalem that are struggling. And because money is not something I cling to, money doesn't make me happy because I love other people, results in this generous Sacrificial love for others. That's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, of how the body of Christ works. Again, just contextually, like, like this is our story, right? You've got this, this secular, sexualized city of Antioch that is proud of itself. It has all these things. And the disciples come in, and the disciples, and I can't help but talk about Jesus again and again and again. And these disciples, the grace of God is evident in their lives. There's discipleship happening in the church. People are gathered together. There's this sacrificial and generous love that is happening amongst these disciples. And the city of Antioch, the the, the culture around them can't help but say, man, these people belong to Jesus. In fact, this would be the summary of this message. This would be the, the big idea is that the faith of us who belong to Jesus will be evident to the world around them. This is what happened in Antioch. This wasn't the disciples saying, look at us, we're Christian. No, this was people looking at them and saying, man, they belong to Jesus. I see their faith. If our faith is genuine and we belong to Jesus, our faith will be evident to the people around us. So let me just ask a couple of questions. People around you, think about it. Don't think about the people in this room around you. Think about your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Think about your classmates. Think about your family. What word would they use to describe you? Who would they say that you belong to? Oh, that person, they belong to this political party. That's the solution to their life. Oh, this person, they belong to, to this or that. What would they say that you belong to? Well, well, I'm a Christian. Well, well, of course, I go to church. Of course, they'd say I'm a Christian. What do those people here you talk about most? What are you most excited about? What are the things that you're constantly telling others about? Oh, I've got this vacation plan. You've got to hear it. It's going to be amazing. Huh. Oh, let me tell you, all these things I'm doing with my money. Look how wealthy I am. Look at all this success I'm having with my financials. Oh, let me tell you what's happening, how great I am at work. I did this, and I did that, and I did that. Oh, let me tell you about politics, and we need to vote for this guy. We need to get this guy out because this is all a mess. What is it that is most on our lips? What is that showing as a foundation of our life? I mean, if we're going to be honest, like, do we actually believe what Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross for us? Do we believe that's remarkable? Are we actually telling other people about that? Oh, oh, pastor, no, I'm a Christian. They'd say I'm a Christian. Like, uh, I grew up in church. Like, that's my pew. You'll still see the birth spot underneath it. Like, that's my, pastor, I'm, I'm a Christian. Would the people around you say that they see the grace of God in your life? When someone sets you off, when they make you mad, when they cut you off on the road, how do you respond? Are you displaying love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness and self-control? No, pastor, pastor, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Like, people know I serve at church. I serve at that VBS with all them kids that run around, run ragged. Like, of course, pastor, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Do so the people around you see that you are committed to growing with other Christians? And do you realize there are no lone ranger Christians? The Christian life is a life in community. Are you walking in life and allowing others to speak life into you, growing together? No, pastor, I read my Bible. They know I'm a Christian. I got got the necklace. I got the shirt. I got the sticker on my car. But do the people around you, do they see you use your resources to sacrificially love others? Or are your resources to make your life easier? Based on how you live your life, what would people say that you belong to? Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to the world? Do you belong to yourself? the story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he had conquered the known world when he was just 23 years old. Remarkable guy. Years later in his life, he learned that there was a man in his army that, that, that had his same name, that was named after him. But this guy had a reputation of being a coward. So one day, one day, Alexander, he calls this guy in and he says, is it true that your name is Alexander? And is it true that you're named after me? And the guy's like, yes, both of these are true. And Alexander's response was, "Well, you either need to be brave, or you need to change your name." Now, praise God, God doesn't say that to us. You got to change. You can't be with me anymore. But God does call us to live a life, to live our faith in a way that others would see that we actually belong to Jesus. Are you known as being a Christian? Are you known as somebody who belongs to Jesus? Not just in name, but do you have the characteristics that show that you belong to him? Are you living for him? If not, maybe today's the day that you need to make some new commitments. Maybe today's the day that you need to confess, man, I'm not living for you. I'm not displaying you. I I don't live a life that shows I belong to you. But today, God, I'm going to confess that. I'm going to commit, God. I'm going to live a life that shows I belong to you. Maybe for you, it's, man, you you recognize why Barnabas said, remain faithful to the Lord, because you've been distracted. You were once on fire for the Lord, on fire for him. But, man, all these other things have your attention. Maybe today's the day that you say, God, I'm going to put my eyes back on you. Or maybe for some, you're like, man, those Christian characteristics, they're not present in my life. Maybe it's because you have not yet become a Christian. The message of Jesus, the message of Christianity, is that every one of us are sinners. Sinners. And our sin separates us from God. It doesn't matter if you're a notorious sinner or whether you sin just very lightly. Our sin is an offense to God and makes us guilty before him. But the good news is, because he loves us, he sent his son Jesus to live the life that we couldn't. Perfect in every way. Then Jesus was, was, was arrested and was hung on a cross according to the plan of God. He suffered for our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserve. He died, he was buried, and he rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin, and Satan, and the curse of death, and hell. And John 1 tells us that all who believe, all who receive him, who believe in his name that he has given them the right to become the children of God. Maybe for you today, maybe this is the day you to confess your need for Jesus, confess your sin, repent, and believe the love that God has given us in Jesus, that you could be transformed, just like those Christians in Antioch were, transformed where Jesus is the one who's changed your life. You know he's the one who can change.